0: Here in the second week of classes, we call these special services. Uh, sometimes they're more special than other. We don't mean to be presumptuous about that, but I think you would agree with me that these have been special services this week. We've been challenged to think think deeply, maybe to think differently about the gospel of Jesus Christ. I want to thank, and I want to uh, allow you to join me in thanking Pastor Tullian before he comes to speak for this time that he spent with us. I'll tell you in a couple of ways why I'm especially thankful. I've learned uh, over these couple last couple of days that Um, Tullian normally does not accept speaking engagements for this length of time, three days, being away from home. That's number one. Secondly, to ask someone to leave South Florida and come to Wheaton, (laughs) Illinois, is quite a sacrifice. So let's thank Tullian together. Well, it's been my privilege to be here. It really has been, and I look forward to coming back at some point other than wintertime. It's been great. I mean, I've had a chance to talk to a lot of you. Uh, I've received notes and letters from a handful of you, and uh, God has not surprisingly done something this week. in you, in me even, as I've watched him do things in you. That has been a great encouragement to me. So I'm a, I'm a big fan of what God is doing at Wheaton. I'm a big fan of the resurgence of interest in the gospel that is taking place here. Um, and I have so much more to cover in my last time with you and such a short period of time that I'm gonna get right to it. So I'm gonna base a lot of what I say today on Romans chapter 7. So if you have a Bible, flip to Romans chapter 7. Let me begin by asking you this. Would it be surprising to you if I told you that God doesn't simply care about any kind of obedience, but that God cares supremely about a certain kind of obedience? Um, let me, let me give you an example. Jesus on the Sermon on the Mount, if you've read through the Sermon on the Mount, you'll know this to be very true. Jesus insists, as you make your way through Matthew 5, 6, and 7, Jesus insists that righteousness is not simply a matter of what we do, but rather a question of why we do it. So as you make your way through the Sermon on the Mount, you you discover that according to Jesus, the apparent goodness of a deed can be destroyed by the motivation that inspires that deed. Let me give you an example. Uh, We have a uh, common space next to our house and uh, it doesn't belong to us, but we live on a corner lot and uh, there's this neighborhood Common space that my boys use with their friends regularly to have football games and baseball games and soccer games and that sort of thing. And neither of our neighbors like us for whatever reason. I mean, we're the sweetest people in the neighborhood. I couldn't, I don't know why they don't like us, but they don't like us. And George especially doesn't like us. He's just an angry old man. And he doesn't like me and he doesn't like kids and he doesn't like himself and he doesn't like his wife and he doesn't like our neighbor. He doesn't like anything. Well, My boys would have, when they were younger, would have these, you know, sort of neighborhood-wide football games. And once in a while, during the game, a pass would be overthrown and uh, the ball would land in George's yard. And it was almost as if George was sitting uh, inside his front door, looking out the window, just waiting, hoping that the kids would do something that would justify him going outside and yelling at them. And this happened on numerous occasions where the ball would land in George's yard, and George would run outside, and he would threaten the kids. He would yell at my boys. Um, And this is when Gabe and Nate were younger, you know, 8 and 10 or 12 and 10. And uh, he would threaten to take the ball away. He would threaten to call the police, all sorts of things to little kids. So my boys would come inside and you know, they would have tears streaming down their face and their lips would be quivering. And I would say, what's going on? What's the matter? And they would say, George came outside and threatened us and yelled at us and he's gonna call the police and we're gonna go to jail and all this stuff. (laughs) And I said, you're not gonna go to jail. You're fine, don't worry about it. George is a jerk, okay? I mean, that's just part of life, living life in a fallen world with other fallen people. And on numerous occasions, numerous occasions, I wanted to go next door and give George a piece of my mind, okay? And because I'm just a scrapper, there are numerous occasions when I wanted to go next door and give George more than a piece of my mind. And yet I never did it. I never went next door and raked George over the coals. I never went next door and fought with George. I never went next door and threatened George. And on the outside, anybody who would have observed the fact that I did not go and threaten George would have seen that as self control wow tullian you're so virtuous i mean i can't even begin i can't even begin to imagine what you must feel like as a father to have this neighbor threaten your boys and yet you've restrained yourself and you've exercised so much self control and compassion toward george on the outside it looked like i was righteous but god and i knew the real reason why i never went next door To confront george the real reason i didn't go next door to confront george was because i wanted to protect myself i didn't know what he would do i didn't know what i would be risking if he would if he would soil my reputation in the neighborhood if if he would call the police if i would get in trouble if i would have a complaint leveled against me i was so concerned about my own reputation and my own protection that I I never went next door and confronted George. So on the outside, it looked like something virtuous, but it was this unrighteous self-preservation that actually prevented me from going next door and confronting George. That's what Jesus is getting at in the Sermon on the Mount. He's saying, righteousness, the righteousness that God requires, is far deeper than what you do on the outside. Jesus cuts through outer behavior and cuts to the heart and basically shows, as I said a minute ago, that the apparent goodness of a good deed can be destroyed by the motivation that inspires it. Now, the reason I bring that up is because a lot of people inside the church have concluded that God simply cares that we obey, period. And yet, the Bible makes it very clear that God isn't simply concerned with any kind of obedience, but He's concerned with a certain kind of obedience. If any kind of obedience, regardless of what motivates it, is what God is after, then He would have showcased the Pharisees and said, be like them, because they did it better than anybody. They did it better than than everybody. So, what motivates our obedience, this is so important to understand, what motivates our obedience determines whether or not it is a sacrifice of praise. Doing, in other words, the right thing with the wrong heart reveals deep unrighteousness, not devout righteousness. And the reason that's so important is because somewhere along the way, we got the idea that if we do what God tells us to do, even though our hearts are far from him, it's something to be proud of. It's something admirable. It's something praiseworthy. praiseworthy. Now, Now, don't get me wrong. I mean, we should obey even when we don't feel like it. God expects that from us, and I expect that from my children, for instance. But let's not make the mistake of proudly equating that with the righteousness that God requires. God cares about a certain kind of obedience. What motivates our obedience matters to God. What goes on on the inside matters to God. What prompts our behavior matters to God. And inside the church, there seems to be almost an exclusive focus on behavior modification. As if that really was the root of our problem. And so, what I want to talk about uh, briefly this morning is why it is so important to be able to distinguish properly between what the Protestant Reformers referred to as God's two words, the law and the gospel. Martin Luther said that everything in the Bible generally falls under one of two categories. Do or done. And he said that everything in the Bible generally falls under either the category of imperative, you must do, or indicative, it's already been done. And Martin Luther said, if we're, going to, if we're going to read the Bible rightly, we have to be able to properly distinguish between law and gospel. These two good words from God, both are good, but both have different job descriptions. Both do very different things. And one of the reasons why there is a blockage of gospel renewal and understanding in your life and in my life and inside the church is because for a long time we have depended on the law to do what only the gospel can do. We depend on the law to accomplish for us and to secure for us what only the gospel can do. So I want to distinguish between these two things by looking at Romans 7. Because when the law and not the gospel becomes our motivation, we we end up obeying out of fear and guilt. And what happens is that this turns our obedience into a rejectable, Cain-like, pharisaical sacrifice. What motivates our obedience matters to God. And if we don't distinguish between law and gospel properly, and we allow the law to do for us what only the gospel is intended to do, we will be motivated out of fear and guilt, self-protection. I don't want to do this because I will get in trouble, and since the goal of my life is to preserve myself, I won't do whatever this thing is. That's not a form of obedience that glorifies God. Okay. That is a form of obedience that has you and me at the center of our agenda, not God. So, this has to be properly distinguished. So, I want to just, two questions, what does the law do and what does the gospel do? First thing, Paul makes it clear here, what does the law do? Paul begins this section, verses 7 through 14, he begins this section by saying that the law is good. It's a huge mistake to conclude that God's law is bad. It's good. God's law is good. It's a perfect reflection of who God is. And so God's law is good. And he makes it clear here that it was in God's perfect law that he was helped to see his sin. In other words, he says that the law is like a mirror. It shows me who I really am and what I really need. The problem is not God's law. The problem is me. And then he says in verses 8 and 9, that before he knew God's law, he thought he was good. In other words, before he knew the righteous requirements of God's law and the totality and comprehensiveness of the demands, he thought he was doing pretty well. He thought he was a pretty good guy. He thought he was making it, certainly when he measured himself against those around him, he concluded that he was pretty much better than the next guy. But all of that came to a screeching halt under the light of God's perfect law. Notice what he says. The law of God crushed him, and he uses even stronger language. He says, the law of God killed me. The law of God broke my legs. It crushed me. It showed me just how unrighteous I was. I was doing pretty good when I was measuring my righteousness by those around me. But when God's law became the measurement by which I evaluated myself, I realized that I was a lot worse than I thought I was. When the standard is anything smaller than God's perfect law, we become self-righteous. We start concluding that we're doing pretty well and, and then we start losing sight of the fact that we desperately need the gospel. For whatever reason, I was talking with some friends about this last night, for whatever reason, even though we would never put it this way, a lot of us have grown up thinking that Christian growth is becoming increasingly independent of our need for Jesus. So Christian growth is this idea that we're becoming stronger and stronger and we're becoming more and more competent. And as we become stronger and stronger and more and more competent, we grow out of our desperate need for Jesus. And yet, what the Bible clearly says, and Paul said this at the end of his life, I'm the worst guy that I know. And in a whole host of other places, the Bible makes it clear that Christian growth is not I'm becoming stronger and stronger, I'm becoming more and more competent. Christian growth is I'm becoming increasingly aware of just how weak and incompetent I am and how desperately dependent I am on the strength and competency of Christ. That's Christian growth. And we've got it all wrong. We've got it backwards. It's not we're getting bigger and bigger and stronger and stronger. It's we're we're becoming increasingly aware of how weak we are. And that's what God's law does for us. That's what it did for Paul. That's what it does for us. It shows us that we are weak. It shows us that we are incompetent. It shows us that no matter how much we've grown since we first became a Christian, when God's law becomes the standard of evaluation, we realize we're still pretty bad and in desperate need of God's amazing grace. That's what God's law does. He then describes here, In verses 15 to 23, this ongoing internal struggle of knowing what God requires and being unable to fulfill those requirements. He says, the things that I want to do, I don't do. And the things that I don't want to do, those are the things that I keep on doing. He describes this internal war that is waging. And he finds himself completely desperate. Now, the reason this is important is because there is this common misunderstanding that while the law cannot save us, the law can grow us after we're saved. Most people inside the church believe that. Okay, we get it. The law doesn't save us. Our adherence to God's perfect law doesn't save us. It is by grace we are saved through faith. This not of ourselves is the gift of God so that no man should boast. I get that, okay? And we understand that. We understand that God's law, the adherence to God's law can't save us. But somewhere along the way, we've concluded that the law does have the power to grow us. And yet Paul is saying here in these verses, the law can't change me. The, the, the job description, the function of the law is to reveal my sin, but it does not have the power to remove my sin. That's what he's saying. The law cannot engender what it commands. It shows me what godliness is, but it cannot make me godly. It shows me what a sanctified life looks like, but it does not have sanctifying power. So, in light of Paul's inability to change himself by keeping the law and to attain the righteousness he needs, he cries out in verse twenty-four: "O wretched man that I am, who's going to rescue me? Where is my help going to come from? I mean, I am in desperate need of an outside helper. I'm not making it on my own. I thought I was doing pretty good until God's law showed up on the scene and reminded me just how desperate I am if the only measure of evaluation is how I'm doing on the outside, many of us may be able to conclude that we're doing pretty well. And all this talk of needing the gospel is black and white to us because after all, we're making it. But the law of God goes deeper than external behavior. It goes down deep into the heart, and it shows us that even our best works need to be pardoned by Christ's blood because they're tainted by impure motives and selfish ambition, just like my story about George. Now, the reason this is important is because we will always be suspicious of grace until we realize our desperate need for it. See, desperate people love grace. Deceived people, that is, people who basically think they're making it, they're afraid of grace. They're the ones that are constantly saying, we can't talk about grace all the time. Because if we do, everything's, everything's going to hell in a handbasket. We can't, we can't talk about it. If we talk about the unconditionality and the hilarity and the radicality of God's grace, people are going to take advantage of it and go off the deep end. Stop it. So I hear a lot of yes, grace, but conversations inside the church. And every time I hear that, I think, you have no clue how desperate you are. You're not taking God's law seriously enough. Because if you were taking God's law seriously, you would realize grace is your only hope. You know, there's a lot of talk. Anytime we talk about these sorts of things, someone will yell out, you know, from the back row, cheap grace, cheap grace. And I'm thinking, you better be glad it's cheap or else you couldn't afford it, okay? And more importantly, it's free. That's even more scandalous. It's absolutely free. Gerhard Forty, Lutheran theologian, says, oftentimes we make the mistake of answering the objection of cheap grace by making it more expensive, which is our tendency. It's my tendency as a parent to do that. It's my tendency as a preacher to do that. So what does the gospel do? Well, he makes it clear here in verse 25, after wrestling with his own inability to keep God's commands. He finds hope in the one who came to do for him what he couldn't do for himself. Verse 24, oh, wretched man that I am. I'm trying to do it. I'm trying to make it. I'm crashing and I'm burning. O wretched man that I am. Who's going to rescue me from this body of death? And then verse 25, the first party says, thanks be to God for Jesus, that Jesus came to do for me what I could never do for myself. Jesus came to secure for me what I could never secure for myself. Paul breaks out into loud praise here because he knows that the determining factor in his relationship with God is not his obedience, but Christ's obedience for him. And that's good news to Paul because in light of God's law, he's beginning to realize, listen, my obedience is not as polished and impressive as I thought it was. When I begin to evaluate my obedience at the level of motivation, I realize I'm a pretty wretched guy. And so Paul finds great, great doxological freedom knowing that his standing with God is not based on his struggle for Jesus, but Jesus' struggle for him. The gospel is good news Precisely because our relationship to God does not depend on our obedience, our zeal, our efforts, and our generosity, but Christ's. It's Jesus plus nothing equals everything. I mean, think about this. Your security, your status, your significance is determined by Christ's performance for you, not your performance. I. I beg God to help you get that now, so you don't have to live life for 10, 15, 20 years on a performance treadmill that will cause you to crash and burn. It will ruin relationships. It'll ruin your relationship with God. It'll ruin your relationship with your future spouse and your children. It'll kill you. Trying to make it on your own and do it yourself will kill you. And when you begin to realize that my standing with God is based on Christ's performance for me, not my performance for him, when you begin to realize that I don't need to save myself, defend myself, legitimize myself, justify myself, free myself, or in any other way, ensure that the ultimate verdict on my life is pass and not fail, when that hits you and you realize it's not all riding on you, but that Jesus paid it all and it is finished, It sets you free. The gospel announces that I'm not on my own. The gospel comes as good news to those who have crashed and burned. What I need and long for most has come from outside of me, from above the sun in the person of Jesus. And as I said um, on, I think it was Wednesday, the gospel announces that because Jesus was strong for you, you're free to be weak. Because Jesus was extraordinary, you're you're free to be ordinary. Because Jesus won for you, you're free to lose. Because Jesus succeeded for you, you're free to fail. Your worth and your value and your security and your significance and your sense that you matter is not riding on you. It is firmly anchored in what Christ has done for you. Your identity, if you are a Christian, has nothing to do with you. It has everything to do with the one who came as your substitute. We need Jesus as mediator. We need Jesus as friend. We need Jesus as intercessor. But what we need Jesus for more than anything else is a substitute to do for us what we could never do for ourselves. So real freedom happens when we finally concede that we can't fix ourselves. (laughs) So in this sense, once you give up, you're free. The law tells us what to do. The gospel tells us what God has done. The law tells us what God expects of us. The gospel tells us what God has done for us because we couldn't meet his expectations. The law reminds us that we're a lot worse than we think we are. The gospel tells us that God's grace is infinitely bigger than we could have ever imagined. Understand this distinction. The law is good in its relentless reminder that we can't do it. The gospel is good in its relentless reminder that Jesus did it for us. So you just simplify it by putting it this way. The law continually shows us how desperately dependent we are on the gospel. The law drives us to Christ, Paul says in Galatians. It drives us to Christ. It shows us our need and shows us the one who came to meet our need. It constantly reminds us, the law of God constantly reminds us that we bring nothing to the table except the unrighteousness that makes Christ's righteousness necessary. So don't make the mistake of depending on the law to do what only the gospel can do. John Bunyan put it this way. I love this. Run, John, run. The law demands but gives me neither feet nor hands. Better news the gospel brings. It bids me fly and gives me wings. So the gospel declares that Jesus has done everything. He paid it all it is finished. The threat of failure, judgment, and condemnation has been removed. You're in forever. Your value, your worth, your security is secure. Your significance, your identity is anchored in Christ. Your obedience won't make God love you more, and your disobedience won't make God love you less. If you are a Christian, you are under the completely sufficient, imputed righteousness of Christ. So, relax, okay? I mean, relax. Rejoice. It is finished. John Piper says it so well when he says, how do you glorify a water fountain? You come thirsty and drink, how do you glorify God? You come broken and rest. You trust that God in Christ has done everything that needs to be done, it is finished. My friend Mike Horton puts it this way, the finished work of Christ is the breaking open of the pinata and the Christian life is a life spent gathering the candy the pressure's off. So relax. Press on. Strain forward. Reach higher and further and go faster than you've ever gone before, because if you fail, you've lost nothing. Everything you need in Christ you have. Jesus plus nothing equals everything. Let's pray together. Father, thank you for your truth, your word. Thank you for both your law and your gospel. Thank you for Jesus. Thank you for, thank you for your descending one-way love to sinners like us. I pray that we would revel in it, that we would wrestle with it, that we would stand on it. I pray that our, that our focus would become singular, that we would become gospel-saturated, gospel-intoxicated people who bleed grace, who are able to quickly identify yes, grace, but conversations. Help us to recognize just how deadly that but is, and that the the flesh fighting for life resists. It is finished. So, Father, that part of us that resists the unconditionality of grace, I pray that we would reckon dead and that as a result, You would set us free. We pray all these things in Christ's name. Amen.